राम 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 विष्णुपाद परमहंसा परिव्राज गचार्यवामीपाद नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय ओम नमो भगवते वासुदेवाय स्वामीपा who was established within this material world the mission to fulfill the desire of lord chaitanya give me shelter under his lotus feet vancha kalpatarubhyascha kripasindubhyavacha patitanam pavanebhyo vaishnavebhyo namo namaha I offer my respectful obeisances unto the Vaishnav devotees of the lord they are just like desire trees and can fulfill the desires of everyone and they are full of compassion for the fallen conditioned souls jay shri krishna chaitanya prabhu nityananda shri advaita gadadhar shri vasadi gorabhakta vrinda i offer my respectful obeisances unto shri chaitanya mahaprabhu lord nityananda shri advaita gadadhar pandit shri vas thakur and all the devotees of lord chaitanya hare krishna hare krishna 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 hare hare हरे राम हरे राम 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 हरे हरे 
I pray that Sri Sri Radha Kalachanji, Srila Prabhupada, and Srila Gurudev use me as an instrument so that their message can flow through me to give me the words to serve the Vaishnavas listening. Today is Tuesday, September 6, 2022. I am Jai Sri Radha Devi Dasi, and we are reading from Srimad Bhagavatam Canto 1, Creation. Chapter 18, Maharaj Parikshit Cursed by a Brahmana Boy. Text 1. Suta uvacha Yo voy drauna astra viplustao Namatur udare mritaha Anugrahad bhagavata Krishna syat puta karmana Suta uvacha Yovai droni astra viplusto Namatur udare mrita Anugrahad bhagavata Krishna syad bhuta karmana Please chant. Suta uvacha Yovai drowni astra vipluso Namaturudare mrita Anugrahad Bhagavata Krishna syad bhuta karmana Sutta uvacha Sri Sutta Goswami said Ya one who Vai, certainly, Drauni Astra, by the weapon of the son of Drona, Viplustaha, burned by, Na, never, Matvu, of the mother, Udare, in the womb, Mritaha, met his death, Anugrahat, by the mercy, Bhagavata, the personality of Godhead, Krishnasya, Krishna, Adbhuta, Karmana, who acts wonderfully. Translation and purport by His Divine Grace A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Srila Prabhupada. Jay. Sri Sutta Goswami said, Due to the mercy of the personality of Godhead, Sri Krishna, who acts wonderfully, Maharaja Parikshit, though struck by the weapon of the son of Drona in his mother's womb, could not be burned. Purport. The sages of Naimasaranya became struck with wonder after hearing about the wonderful administration of Maharaja Parikshit, especially in reference to his punishing the personality of Gali, and making him completely unable to do any harm within the kingdom. Sutta Goswami was equally anxious to describe Maharaj Pariksit's wonderful birth and death, and this verse is stated by Sutta Goswami to increase the interest of the sages of Naimai Sharanya. 
So we're now starting chapter 18, and we've just finished discussion, discussing in chapter 17 um, the glories of some of the activities of Maharaj Pariksit, in which he was touring his kingdom, and he saw some, you know, great wrongdoings being done by um, the personification of Kali, who was a sudra dressed as a kshatriya. And he was torturing a cow, which represented Mother Earth. And he had, you know, tortured, um, he was about to kill the cow, and he had tortured the bull. And the bull represents dharma, or religion, or, you know, the way we act. And he'd broken, you know, four legs of dharma, which represents, he broke three of the four legs of dharma, which represents the pillars of dharma, which are austerity, um, cleanliness, mercy, and truthfulness. And the only leg that was remaining during, you know, at the dawn of the age of Kali was truthfulness. So, in the purport, Prabhupada says that um, Maharaj Pariksit banished the personality of Kali and made him completely unable to do any harm in the kingdom. And we talked about, in the last few verses, we talked about how he sent Kali away um, outside of the kingdom so as not to disturb the citizens of the kingdom as they were, you know, following these four um, pillars of religion. And now we're setting up for the story of how Maharaj Pariksit becomes cursed and then, you know, he has seven days to live and he come, goes to the forest, which is kind of the prequel for the Srimad Bhagavatam, right? So this is how everything comes about to where we're even reading what we're reading today is this chapter is what this chapter is going to describe where Marge Pariksit gets cursed. Um, and then he finds he has seven days to live and he decides during those seven days he just wants to listen about the Supreme Personality of Godhead. He wants to learn and hear about that. So he goes to the forest and what he what we're reading is what he's hearing. These are the stories that he's hearing. So it's a little bit meta as they say, right? at this point right now, because how can he hear about his the telling of his own story if he's there? So it's kind of like we're hearing this part so that we can understand how he came there. Um, and one of the things that's mentioned in the verse is that um, he'd already been saved once when he was struck by the um, great weapon, the Brahmastra, when he was in his womb and Lord Krishna saved him or, you know, revived him in the womb so that he would be able to do all these great feats. And when it came time for this curse, we'll find out that he willingly accepts it because he says, I was already saved once, right? So we're kind of setting up all the little, you know, it's called table setting, right? We're setting up all the, the stories so that we can understand what's happening going forward. So the, the thing that struck me about reading this is that um, it says that he could not be burned, and it reminded me of all the verses in chapter 2 of the Bhagavad Gita where it describes the soul, right? So even though in this story we see that, you know, he was, the, the weapon targeted him specifically in the womb, and Lord Krishna saved him, but on the other hand, you know, the soul is eternal. The soul can't be destroyed by any weapon, and 
you know, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita 2.17 and 2.18, that which pervades the entire body, you should know to be indestructible. No one is able to destroy that imperishable soul. The material body of the indestructible, immeasurable, and eternal living entity is sure to come to an end. So the body is temporary, but the soul is eternal. And the soul resides in the body. So the so in chapter 2, Krishna spends a lot of time describing the soul, the qualities of the soul. And he says, for the soul, there's neither birth nor death at any time. It's not come into being, does not come into being, will not come into being. It's unborn, eternal, ever-existing, and primeval. It's not slain when the body is slain. He goes on to describe that it can never be cut to pieces by any weapon, burned by fire, moistened by water, withered by the wind. Um, It's unbreakable and insoluble and can neither, neither be burned nor dried. It's everlasting, okay. present everywhere, unchangeable, immovable, eternally the same. So we can understand that um, from reading these verses that the soul is eternal and it's the body that dies, right? Krishna goes on to say, one who has taken birth is sure to die, and after death, one is sure to take birth again. And then he says, the one who dwells in the body can never be slain. So the soul itself can never be slain. And this is the fundamental like basis of understanding Krishna consciousness, that we're not the soul, we are the body. We're, sorry, we're not the body, we are the soul. And... Um, we often talk about this, right? We're not this body. We're, this body is just a, an outer covering. It's the house of the soul. And then we say we are the soul. So when I'm thinking about that, it really, like the latest realization I've had about that is that it's not really the body that keeps me um, in my material desires and attachments. It's the mind. It's the mind that we have to really... Um, realize that we're not this mind. You know, the mind really can is really powerful. It can make us believe it do anything, right? There's a study that was done where um, I think something like they had people like imagine themselves playing the piano, um, and they they would just imagine themselves very like viscerally, like imagine that they're doing it. They'll they could, you know, describe the keys on their hands and how it feels and, you know, how they're playing and how their fingers movement. So it's like very in detailed imagining. It's not just like, oh, I'm at the keyboard and I'm playing. And they would imagine this for hours and they would have the same amount, like they would go and play and they would be able to play without practicing at all just because they visualized it. So the mind doesn't really make a distinction between reality reality and imagination. And that's how powerful the mind is, right? They had this other study that they did where they took um, poison ivy and they rubbed it, or they told people it was poison ivy, and they rubbed it on uh, 20 people, and then like half of them were rubbed with poison ivy, and or they were all rubbed with poison ivy, and half of them were told it was nothing, it was not poison ivy. And the people that were told were poison ivy, they had more of a reaction than those that were told that they were not. 
And then they did the opposite. They rubbed him with some regular leaf, and they told half that it was poison ivy and the other half it wasn't poison ivy. And even though it wasn't poison ivy, the same amount of people still reacted as if it was poison ivy. Right? So it's the mind that's really powerful. The, ha- the body itself is just, it's, it's a dead thing, right? It's, it doesn't have any like, desires in itself other than you know, it needs a certain amount of things to maintain itself. My notes didn't come through. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, yes, here we go. Right, so the mind um, is very powerful. So really what it comes down to is is the mind, right? So Krishna says in um, Bhagavad Gita, one must deliver oneself with the help of their mind and not degrade oneself. The mind is the friend of the conditioned soul and their enemy as well. So the mind is what's powerful. The mind is what we really want to understand and control and really understand that we're not this mind, that the thoughts that we have are not really who we are, and it's not reality. Because as we can see, that we can have any thoughts, and then our body thinks it's real. There's also another study where they actually did something, like they told... Um, a certain amount of people at a mall that this horrible tragedy happened, and they described it vividly, and they said, you were there, this is what you saw. And um, the people really believed it to the point where, like, when they were told, no, we, we just made that up, they wouldn't accept that anymore, right? So it's like we have this strong belief system based on, you know, the experiences we've had, the um, what we've been taught, what we see, you know, and all of that makes up our beliefs, and that contributes to our thoughts and our perceptions, and then our thoughts and perceptions color how we see the world and how we interact with the world. And so the mind is what is really powerful. Of course, Arjuna says, um, you know, the mind is restless and unsteady. It's turbulent, obstinate, and very strong, and to subdue it, is more difficult than controlling the wind. So we can understand that, right? Like if we've ever just sat down and tried to meditate, right? So just like try to banish the thoughts from our head, it's so impossible. Even when we chant our, we engage in mantra meditation and chant our japa, you know, so many other thoughts come into our minds where it's like, this is my to-do list, this is what I'm going to do, this is what's going on. Oh, why is that piece of cloth there? Let me move that. Like All of these thoughts are happening in our heads when we're trying to concentrate on hearing um, the Maha Mantra and chanting it. So we can understand that this is very difficult to control. And often when we talk about meditation, first thing people say is like, oh, I can never, I can't meditate, you know, I, my mind is too restless, my thoughts are too strong, I can't think of nothing. So, um, you know, we have to find a way to engage the mind for us, right? When we look at it, the mind is just like a child, you know, and a child needs lots of discipline and structure. Um, Recently, I've had I've gotten the opportunity to teach at the Gurukul, and so not being a parent myself, I didn't have a lot of day-to-day interactions with children. So I was, I would hear these things, and I'm like, what does that mean? 
So as I'm teaching these kids, I'm really seeing the importance of structure, of having, you know, like things that are laid out and planned so that they follow a certain path. And our mind is the same way. You know, our mind really needs things kind of laid out so it knows which path to take. At the same time, the children don't want that kind of strict structure. They just think they want to, like, roam and be free and play and run around. And our mind is the same way. It really needs the structure, but it also doesn't want the structure. So we have to very gently engage the mind. Um, you know, I've heard it said that we can, like, beat the mind, act as if we're beating the mind with... Um, a broom, like a hundred times in the morning and a hundred times in the evening. And for me, that just never really seems to work, right? I found that when I took a, take a more gentle approach to the mind and maybe do some positive reinforcement with my mind, that seems to help more, right? For instance, um, the goal is to like get up early in the morning and chant our japa early in the morning. And sometimes you get to bed a little late and you know, we can't really wake up in the morning or, you know, you just feel like your body needs more sleep. And so um, oftentimes I'd be like, God, why couldn't I do it? You know, I'm just, I'm so, you know, useless. I'm weak. I'm strong. I'm like not able to do this. I'm not able to get up. And then what that creates is this kind of like guilt and shame inside of me. Like it's, it's there, you know, subconsciously all throughout the day, like, oh, I wasn't able to do this. I was, you know. And so all I can think about is like all my failures because that's what I'm focusing on and that's what I'm like creating. Instead of that, if I were to focus on, okay, we weren't able to get up today. Let's, let's see what we can do. How can we rectify this situation? It's understandable. You didn't get enough sleep last night. Let's, wake up. We're like, let's, let's see what we can do. Can we go to bed earlier? What do we need to do to get to bed earlier? So it's more of like understanding and then let's work through that. And I look at it as if like, if I had a friend and they were like, man, I really wanted to get up this morning, but I wasn't able to wake up. There's no way I would ever talk to that friend and say, wow, you're just useless. You are so weak. You have no willpower. How how can you just live with yourself, you know? But yet, these are the same things I say to myself, right? Like, this is how we talk to ourselves when we don't do something we think we're going to do. And we talked extensively um, these last few weeks about the four pillars of Dharma, which is like austerity, um, cleanliness, um, truthfulness, and mercy. Well, you know, what we're looking at is truthfulness. We say we're going to get up in the mornings, and yet we don't, right? So then that that thing of truthfulness, gets, our pillar of truthfulness gets a little bit cut down because we didn't honor our own words to ourselves. And so what I found is this activity that I call plan, do, review. So at the end of the day, I look at all the things that I had planned or I thought, Jay, shushu, I like all the energy that I had planned or thought I was going to do, and then, like, review it. How much did I get done? Did I get it done in a good way? Did I get it done in a hurried way? How, you know, what was it? And then kind of make a better plan for the next day, 
right? So if I thought, okay, I'm going to get up at, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning and channel my rounds before I go to work, um, and then I didn't, and I got up at, like, 6.30 and rushed to get ready to go to work. So then, okay, part of that plan do review was, okay, what was some of the things that prevented me from getting up at 4? You know, it was getting to bed late. So what made me get to bed late? So, like, each day... You know, maybe it's that's too big of a goal. Maybe it's like I need to get up a half an hour earlier and start there, right, and um, work our way to then getting up, you know, two hours earlier so I can chant all of my rounds. But maybe in the beginning I just start with, like, four of my rounds and then find time to chant the other, you know, um, 12. So it's things like that. It's kind of more of a gentle approach. And I find that it works a lot better. Like the next day, I don't have that pressure on myself that, you know, oh my God, I've got to do this. Um, I was talking to a friend of mine or, you know, a new friend of mine and she's a, a coach. And I was telling her, you know, like that it's really hard to um, really make changes because I feel so much pressure. I have all these expectations of myself. And she said, well, Let's look at this. Let's turn your expectations into appreciation. And it's a great phrase. I I try to remind myself of that every time, whether it's expectations of myself or expectations of someone else or expectations of an event or of how my day I want goes to be. So instead of um, expectations, it's appreciation, right? So the expectation of myself is that I get up in the morning and, you know, do engage fully and, um, all of the activities all day long. Like, it's like this perfect being, right? Like, you get up, you chant, you honor your prashad, you make your prashadam, you not honor it, and um, then you go to work, and you're thinking of Krishna all day long, and you've read the Srimad Bhagavatam, and you're reading the Bhagavad Gita. It's like all these little parts of our days that we want to do, including, like, working out and drinking water and getting enough sleep. And yet, you know... We don't do all, it's so hard to do all of these things, right? So we start small. So it's like, okay, well, that's the expectation that I have for myself. How do I turn that into appreciation? That didn't make sense to me, right? But what I realized is that it's the appreciation of what I can do in this moment, right? The appreciation is, okay, I got up 15 minutes earlier. You know, I appreciate, you know, it's like, okay, thank you, body, for, you know, cooperating and getting up 15 minutes earlier, Thank you, mind, for cooperating and, you know, letting, settling down and letting me concentrate on the Maha Mantra. And there's two things with that type of gratitude or, or appreciation that you can do. One, it's appreciate for things how they are, but you can also kind of appreciate for how you want them to be. So it's like, okay, thank you. Like in, at night, I can go, thank you, body, for getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning even though I haven't done it yet. I'm already, you know, um, expressing gratitude for that. And this is a great way that I've found, you know, like everybody has their own ways of doing things. What works for one person may not work for another, and some parts work and some other parts don't work. But this is what I found that's helped me a lot because it's like that pressure you I felt all the time was just it's overwhelming and then with that pressure comes the guilt and the shame and then it's like this negative energy all the time and then you become bitter and really Krishna consciousness Krishna is about love he's not about bitterness 
you know? So it's like when people see you, you've got this, like, scrunch up face because you're feeling bad about yourself and you're, you know, emanating this bitterness. And sometimes you can snap at someone because really you're just feeling inadequate within yourself. And when I started being a little bit, it's, it's a practice. I still find that I'm, I can be a little harsh on myself. But when I started being more gentle, I find that naturally I'm nicer to others as well. And, and, you know, people are asking, like, hey, what's going on? Things have seemed different with you. You seem happier. You seem more relaxed, more at peace. And then they want to know what you're doing. What, you know, how did you get there? Um, which is a great way to, you know, share Krishna consciousness because you're leading by example. They're asking you. You're no longer just coming up and being like, hey, have you heard of Krishna? They're, at, they're coming and they're asking you, what are you doing? I want to do that too. And so it becomes a lot more attractive for other people. We remember that Krishna says in um, chapter 6 that um, we want to practice constant control of the body, mind, and activities. Um, and in that way, we attain the kingdom of God. And then he says, there's no possibility of one's becoming a yoga yogi if one eats too much or eats too little, sleeps too much or does not sleep enough, right? So we've been talking a little bit about sleep. And we've seen this. We've experienced this when we um, don't sleep enough. It's harder to control our minds. Our mood gets a little bit more erratic. It's harder to concentrate on our japa. Um, it's harder to make the best decisions for ourselves. Like I find when I don't sleep enough, I tend to eat more junk food. I tend to want, like, not want to do anything except like watch TV. Um, I want, I tend to like just make poor decisions in life. But, you know, the same thing happens if we sleep too much. We can still feel overtired. We can still feel like, you know, a little bit more in our mind. So we want to make sure that that's the same thing. And then if we're hungry, you know, our mind gets all over the place. Oh, my God, I want this and I want that. And if I, you know, so when we eat too little, the mind still wanders too much. And if we eat too much, like you can all, we can all relate to that feeling of like having had a big meal and the mind just isn't really there in a, in a um, positive way. Like it's just so, like we get that kind of brain fog where you can't really understand what's happening and what's going on, right? So that's too much, too little. And so, Really, we want to be where we're regulated in our habits of eating, sleeping, recreation, and work. And by that, we can control our mind. Now, the thing is, with the mind, it's, it's a cycle, right? We, we talked about the four um, pillars. So, um, in order to control the mind, to have the mind come under the control of where we're thinking about what we want to think about, you know, we have to um, practice austerity, and yet, to practice austerity, we have to have some control of the mind. And that's the same thing with cleanliness, right? Like, um, if we let too much clutter in our house, right, doesn't it make the mind feel all scattered? But if the house is more clean and everything is organized, our mind feels more... Um, our mind feels more settled as well. So, you know... 
as well as the body, like, um, it's not so much showering, but sometimes I skip washing my hair, so there's that level of cleanliness. And I know if I go a few days, there's like this feeling I get, like, of the oiliness in my hair that um, kind of gets irritating. And, like, I get a little bit more irritable if my hair is not, you know, cleaned well or, you know, if I'm not washing it regularly. And, you know, like, we know through the pandemic, many people didn't shower regularly. I stopped washing my hair regularly, and I started noticing that, like, that feeling of uncleanliness would disturb my mind. Um, and then when I would wash my hair, I felt like, ooh, everything is, like, settled and regular with the world again. So we can see how cleanliness can affect the mind, but the mind is also affected by cleanliness. So, again, it's that cycle. And we can do that with each of the um, pillars. Like, to, in order to be merciful, we have to have control of the mind. And in order to control the mind, we have to be merciful. And in order to be truthful, we have to control the mind. In order to um, control the mind, we have to be truthful. So it's like this cycle, right? Somewhere or another, we have to be able to, like, jump into that cycle. And that really comes down to um, engaging in who we are, engaging our mind in Krishna, right? Chanting japa. That's how we are able to cut through that cycle, um, in the beginning, when we chant japa, it's very, like, mechanical. Our minds may be all over the place. You know, it may still feel like we're not controlling the mind. And yet, it's slowly chipping away, even if we think that we're not. And I can say, you know, I've been chanting for, is it like, 23, 24? Maybe 24 years, 16 rounds. And, you know, I would like to say I'm better, I'm more attentive now than I was 24 years ago, but my my japa journey as well as my spiritual journey isn't, hasn't been a straight line up. It's been like back and forth and up and down and here and there, you know, and I'm hoping like through all those squiggly lines there is some level of progress. But one thing I can say that I think that has really kept me going in my Krishna consciousness is that it's that chanting of 16 rounds of honoring that vow of chanting 16 rounds every single day, no matter what. Now, the quality, you know, hadn't always been there. I think probably, like, the first 10 to 12 years, it was really just focused on the quantity, getting that number of rounds done, um, no matter what. And that was part of, you know, the discussion I had with my spiritual master, Tamal Krishna Goswami, was that, you know, I was, at that time, that I took initiation, I was in college, and I was heading into medical school and then residency, and he had told me that, you know, one, that it's okay if I didn't chant all of my rounds every day, that if I would make them up or keep track and make them up when I could, and two, that, you know, to chant um, as much as I could in any way I could, right, whether it was like on a clicker in between patients or, you know, just walking from here or there. And what I remember most distinctly is that every time I would see him, he would have this expectation that I hadn't, you know, like I wouldn't, I wasn't chanting. Like he was okay with that. He would be like, how many rounds are you chanting? I'm like, no, I'm chanting all 16. And the look on his face of pure, like, joy 
was it was enough to push through like anything to make sure that I always chanted 16 rounds because I didn't want to see that look of either disappointment or neutrality in his face. Like, okay, yeah, that was what I thought. Like, you know, other people that have gone through medical school couldn't maintain their 16 rounds. Um, but for me, it was like, no, I'm going to do it. It doesn't matter the quality. The quantity was there. So I say this because I think that if at any point I had stopped, I don't know that I would have continued my journey in Krishna consciousness. It was just like doing this small act for Krishna, for my guru, was enough to kind of like push me through all the difficulties. And then after, even after he's left his body, I just still imagine that he's still going to ask me, you know, have you been chanting? And I don't want to say no, you know. So it's like, okay, I'm going to push through. But it was probably 12, 13 years I started thinking, I need to really start working on improving my japa and really work on that quality as well as quantity. And when I did that, it wasn't easy. It wasn't like all of a sudden, okay, yes, I'm going to chant all 16. It was like I had to make these bargains with myself. Okay, let's do one round. You know, one round without picking up your phone, one round without um, without any kind of, you know, distraction as much as possible other than what's going on in my brain, in my mind itself. And then it was like, okay, let's make that two rounds. Let's make that four rounds. Let's make that eight rounds. And some days, you know, it, it happens, and some days it doesn't. And that's where I'm learning to give myself a little grace, where it's like, okay, you weren't able to do it today. What happened? You know, you've had all this free time. What happened? And one of the things that I also learned is that what's easy to do, because it's easy, like, especially if you're not working on chanting quality rounds, it's easy to chant 16 rounds of whatever quality. But it's also easy not to chant 16 rounds. So just as easy as it was for me to pick up my beads and chant while I'm like watching TV or driving or on Facebook or, you know, doing a million other things, I could have done all of those other things without chanting. And so then I was like, okay, now I have to break that habit. And as I did it more, it does become easier. But at the same time, like I realized... If I'm really concentrating on my rounds, I can get them done in an hour and a half. And an hour and a half is like nothing in my day. Like it's, it goes by so quickly, right? I can spend an hour and a half um, scrolling Facebook and not realize that, you know, three hours have gone by. I can, um, you know, binge Netflix and not realize, you know, four hours have gone by. So there's like all these activities that we can do that take up so much more time than an hour and a half. And so it's like, it's easy to do, but it's also easy not to do. And in my calendar, I set aside like initially, okay, I'm going to chant my rounds at this time. Like I do it the day before. This is the time I'm going to chant my rounds. Now, um, sometimes I hit that time goal, and sometimes I'm like, oh, I need a little extra time, and then I, you know, reschedule. Like, I push it down a little bit on my day. Like, let's say I was going to chant it at 9 o'clock today because I'm giving class, but I don't get done here, and um, by the time I get home, it's 9.15. Well, then, you know, 
I just kind of moved that schedule a little bit down on my schedule, right? So instead of from 9 to 10.30, now it's 9.15 to 10.45. And I look at it as the same way as, like, if I was going to meet a friend at 9 o'clock for breakfast and I was running late, I would call them and say, hey, I'm running late. So it's the same thing, right? We're meeting Krishna when we've set aside this time for japa. This is our, like, scheduled time to have one-on-one time with the Lord, Supreme Lord. Like, who can say that? You know, how how blessed are we that we can just take um, one-on-one time with the, you know, the Lord of the universe, the all-attractive God, Krishna, and spend this time with him. And when we chant, he comes. Krishna comes to us and he asks, you know, like, hey, what are we talking about today? What are we engaging in today? And so it's our time to chat with Krishna, to really just, you know, get to know him, for, you know, for him to see how much we are um, serious about, you know, deepening our relationship to Krishna. And the more we connect to Krishna, the more our mind naturally becomes satiated, becomes controlled. And it's no longer a thing that we have to focus on, because Krishna kind of does that for us, right? We just... Because we have to focus on something, we focus on Krishna, Krishna takes care of the rest. So, you know, I would say that from, um, if anything from today's class, if you want to take away, I'd say set aside that time for japa, for chanting your um, mantra meditation, so that you can really um, engage in Krishna consciousness and thinking about Krishna and um, have Krishna be the one that helps you control your mind. You know, he's, he's the best coach. He's the best, you know, he says he's our best friend. And a friend gives us the best advice, right? So he's going to give us the best advice. He's going to guide us in the best way possible. And he does that by bringing people to us that will guide us, right? Our spiritual masters. And so really it's our spiritual master that brings us to Krishna, Um and we only get that once we decide that we want to come to Krishna. So it's all it's like it's all a big cycle. Like we can't really do one without the other. But it all depends on our faith. And and um, one of my favorite verses, which I don't know why it's not showing up here. There it is. Krishna says, well, he tells us to engage in um, six twenty four and six twenty five. Engage ourselves in the practice of yoga with determination and faith. And not be deviated from the path. And then he says in 26.25, gradually, step by step, we become situated um, by means of intelligence with um, full conviction. So this is how we want to do it. Gradually, step by step, with faith and determination. So we have this faith that Krishna will um, help us focus our mind. And we have the determination to have Krishna help us focus our mind, right? And so then that's how we engage in this mood of the mantra meditation, of chanting japa. It gives us something to concentrate on, and we can um, really advance our Krishna consciousness that way. So I'll stop here and see if there are any comments or questions. Thank you. So the comment is that um, he, he appreciates my candor, and uh, sharing some of the struggles that I have. Some people may see that as weakness, but it's actually, um, 
you know, great of me to share. And that um, he especially liked the uh, candor of sharing that beating my mind with a broom did not resonate well with me, and it didn't resonate with him as well. Um, and he often, you know, shares that, and he also liked the practicality of my class. And I'd just like to say that, you know, one of the things that I've learned is that weaknesses are actually strengths, you know. Um, that other things that I've learned is that our vulnerabilities is what gives us the strength to move forward. And that when we share our vulnerabilities, we never know who needs to hear it. Um, because we're all struggling, you know, we're all here challenged by the material modes of nature. And we're, we're afraid to share our, our challenges and struggles, and therefore we don't seek help for it. And yet when we hear someone say, I'm struggling with this, and you think, oh, God, I'm struggling with the same thing. You know, how did you overcome it? Or, you know, what are you doing about it? So then they're more likely to listen. And some people may not be struggling, and it may not resonate with them. But, you know, I always think if one person, one person's heart changes, you know, that's, that's more than enough. Hare Krishna. Dharantara Srimad Bhagavatam Ki Jai.